Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode, Helen Report talks about the race to save the Romanovs with moderator Zulika Rogers, recorded at Printworks, Dublin Castle, on the 7th of October 2018. of you who've read the book, those of you who haven't read it yet, this is an extraordinary piece of research. Um, to say it's comprehensive is really an understatement um, and detailed study really of a, under a year and a half uh, between the abdication um, of Nicholas uh, and the murder of the family. Um, your archival work is quite extraordinary and this is a subject that, as we all know, is really shrouded in theories, many unsubstantiated. Uh, there's no supporting evidence for an awful lot of them. There's myths, fake letters, mystification, uh, missing files, missing telegrams, yes. <laughs> closed archives, flamboyant individuals, family, family rivalries and uh, petty dislikes, uh, revolutionary rivalries, and of course, Anastasia thrown in. Ah, yes, well. Anastasia. How can I ever escape Anastasia? <laughs> <laughs> It's an extraordinary thing. I've been talking about the Romanovs on and off for, well, certainly the 10 years since I wrote my first Romanov book. And I can promise you every single talk, someone, hand goes up, did Anastasia get away? And I think that may be probably one of the reasons I wanted to do this book so much is I got so fed up with people ignoring the science, the DNA testing and all... The, you know, the, the research that has been done into the remains that were discovered is this incredibly persistent desire, fantasy, call it what you will, to hope to believe that someone got away. And I think it all kicked off with Ingrid Bergman, unfortunately, in 1956. Is that a hint that no one's <laughs> to ask about Anastasia in the question no, time? please don't ask me. <laughs> Now, you have written extensively on the subject of the Romanovs, the revolution, even Lenin, lives, their deaths. Um, And at the beginning of the book, you say that you're ready for a new project. You're walking away from Russia, and you're going to turn your attention to the Victorians. Why, then, did you return? What did you feel you had left unsaid or unexamined? Well, it's a funny thing. You know, there's something about the Romanov story that's seductive mythology, the legends, the claims, the counterclaims, miraculous escape and survival, the romanticism, you know, you only got to hear the theme tune to Anastasia in the back of your mind as I do. Um, It's such a seductive myth that I felt, I I began to feel almost trapped in it because this was my third book on the Romanovs and I thought, right, that's it, I've said all I'm going to say, I'm Romanoffed out completely Romanoffed out. But um, in fact, I felt that after the second book, which I loved writing. Um, How it started was with the murder, of course. And the first book I wrote about them was actually a very short time frame of the two weeks in that house in Ekaterinburg, the events leading up to their murder on on that terrible night in July uh, 1918. And I walked around the city trying to get my head into a sense of the Romanovs, Russia, them, that horrible, terrible situation they were in. And all the time in the back of my mind, I kept seeing those girls, the four sisters, those four pretty girls, you know, those lovely photographs we get of them when they're 
lovely white lace frocks and their big hats. And I know it sounds corny, but I love Anton Chekhov, so I kept thinking, three sisters, four sisters, three sisters. And I had the title of the second book before I'd actually even finished writing the first one. So what really prompted me to do this third and final book was precisely because of the persisting mythology. First of all, that someone somehow got away, i.e. Anastasia. But also, the more I looked into the story and the way in which the end of the story, those last 60 months have been repeated from one book to another, the more I became horrified at how much unsubstantiated <laughs> fact was repeated from one book to another with no one saying, um, hang on a minute, where's the evidence for this? And the story actually is full of holes as it's traditionally been told. Can I take you back to before, the, before his abdication, actually before the war? Um, at the beginning of the book, you quote Queen Victoria, a very prescient comment she makes uh, when Alexandra agrees to marry Nicholas. She says that she is concerned about this, and quote, very unsafe throne. And we find King Haakon of Norway uh, advising Nicholas. We have, but there doesn't seem to be really very much self-awareness of the threats to him and to his family. I mean, at one stage you say, um, the race is really the race to save them from themselves. Yeah, I think that's the truth, actually, of the actual situation they were in in 1916-17 with all their various royal relatives were begging them to make compromises. And one of the most vocal people in this attempt to make Nicholas and see that they were absolutely on the edge of the precipice was the British ambassador in Petrograd, a wonderful old school Etonian career diplomat called Sir George Buchanan. Repeatedly Buchanan, who knew the Tsar well, well enough to tell him his throne was gonna fall if he didn't make compromises. People like Sir George Buchanan, the various relatives were begging Nicholas and Alexandra you know, the writings on the wall, if you don't introduce de de democratic change, if you don't introduce a more constitutional form of government and make some political concessions, your throne is going to fall. And it's horrifying because you see Nicholas so stubborn, so totally blinkered, so determined to cling to the autocracy as passed down to him by his father, Alexander III, that he just will not listen to the advice. And if anything, Alexandra is even more intransigent than her husband. It, you know, she really was the power behind the throne in the sense of absolute resistance to any change, any compromise. She talks about divine will. Why would yeah. you share that with the parliament? And, and she also at one point said, why should we introduce democracy in Russia? The Russian people don't know how to handle democracy, which is kind of weird, but in a way true. You know, they'd had 300 years of Tsarist despotism. They exchanged that for Soviet despotism. And now they've got a new form of despotism in Putin. So in a way, she was kind of right. But they were intransigent. They would not make compromises. And a lot of it, I do feel, was tied up with Alexandra's mission. 
absolute mission from the moment her precious boy was born, having struggled through all those pregnancies and having four daughters, her mission to pass on the pure version of Tsarism onto Alexei as the next Tsar. Well, she seems to play a very big role in the story, particularly because people seem to very much dislike her, starting with her relatives. Her relatives hated her. This is the awful thing. Um, one thing that shocked me early on, and I was given access to literally a suitcase. And I start the book with this suitcase full of transcripts of letters written by um, the, the Duchess of Coburg, who was the wife of Prince Alfred, Prince, uh, Queen Victoria's second son, writing to her daughter, Missy, who became Queen of Romania. Constant bitching about Alexandra. They loathed her. All her relatives hated her. They found her completely impossible to get on with, stiff, starchy, reserved to the point of hostility, um, you know, just an immovable kind of person who you couldn't engage with. And they felt, all of them, that she was pushing Nicholas and the monarchy towards disaster. And, of course, the inevitable thing that made this ten times worse was her close association with Rasputin. And if anything propelled the monarchy towards the, the edge of the precipice, it was that relationship. Public opinion seems to focus so much on that. I mean, really disgraceful things are written about her and her relationship with uh, Yeah, I mean, she's a hard person to like, Alexandra. In many ways, she's extremely, extremely difficult and rather hostile personality. But I don't think there's a more demonized woman in mm. history than her. And, and you see it once the throne collapses, with the, uh, the minute there's any discussion in Britain about the Romanovs coming here, people are just absolutely libeling her. I mean, overt demonization of Alexandra in the British press because there was so much hostility towards her. But linked to her being German. Well, this Once is it, you started. see, this is the problem. We were fighting a war. Alexander, to put it bluntly, was a Bosch. Yeah. The Bosch were despised, the Germans were despised. And this created enormous political difficulty right from day one. I mean, forget about Nicholas, you know, Nicholas the Bloody, the architect of Bloody Sunday and the, you know, the pogroms against the Jews and all the demonization of Nicholas. You know, Alexandra was a German. We were fighting the Germans, and the worst possible thing at that point in time was to give sanctuary to a German-born Tsaritsa, despite the fact, and this is her tragedy, you know, she gave up her Lutheran faith. She became a Russian Orthodox, devoutly, obsessively Russian Orthodox, as sometimes converts are. You know, yes. they're more obsessive than the people who were born into it. She was intensely patriotic, loved Russia, devoted to Russia, and yet she was vilified and demonized for the fact that she was born a German. And yet she hated her German relative, Willie, with a vengeance. I'd like to turn now to the issue of the attempt to free them whether through negotiation, offers of asylum and rescue, because that's yeah. really at the heart of this book, um, and really debunking many of the theories um, about it. So, and you go to, into this in incredible detail. 
And the question seems to be a matter of will and way, mm -hmm. or how. Um, the will, was the will there by his relatives, uh, European royalty and government? Um, there are always internal political considerations. There's the war. I mean, there's their self-preservation, of course. Um, and, of course, the relationship with Russia, their ally. And then there's the how. How do they do it in Siberia, in Ekaterinburg? I mean, weather and geography play a really important role in that. And you take us on a journey on some of those theories of how they were going to actually free them and say, look, this wasn't possible. Well, a huge number of things com combined, in my opinion, to make any hope of getting Romanovs out of Russia impossible. But right from the beginning, there are so many misconceptions in the whole idea of giving them sanctuary, asylum, whatever you like to call it. The first misconception that I have to challenge, because it's the knee-jerk question I always get from people, that George <laughs> failed them, that he betrayed them, King George, uh, that he betrayed his Romanov cousins. Um, and the very first thing I uncovered, and it's there, just people had misread the documents. There's this assumption, okay, Nicholas abdicated on the 15th of March, 1917. Um, and people assume that King George suddenly galloped in on his white charger and said, oh, Nicky, come to Russia, uh, come to, uh, leave Russia, come to England, we'll take you in, we will give you asylum. And you see it repeated in book after book, and especially on all the blogs and discussion groups. Oh, yes, King George offered Nicholas asylum. Um, hang on a minute. King George was a constitutional monarch. King George had no executive power to make an offer to take Nicholas in himself. King George, right from the beginning, was hamstrung in that it, the offer had to come from his government. And so here's an interesting thing. Nicholas abdicates on the 15th of March. Do the British government immediately offer an asylum to the Romanovs? No. It took eight days of repeated requests from the Russian foreign minister, Milyukov, in Petrograd through Sir George Buchanan, saying, please, when are you going to send a ship? Please, will you give them asylum? Please, will you take them away? Because, you know, the provisional government knew that politically the Romanovs were a complete hot potato that were going to cause problems. So right from the very beginning, it was not the British who offered straight away because they were cousins. You know this. They're close blood relatives, Nicholas and Alexander, George and Mary. But it was down to Milyukov the provisional government wanting to get them out and making those representations. And that's the first big misconception. The second one is this wretched telegram. <laughs> Many books will say, oh, George sent Nicholas a telegram inviting him to England. Um, no, he didn't. What he did was compose an incre incre incredibly lukewarm wanky kind of telegram saying, oh, poor Nicky, I'm really sorry, and you know, I've always been your friend, uh, basically just offering moral support. And he got so much stick from the British government for having even 
taken the initiative to send that, that it frightened him off. So George did not make any offer. But there's this assumption that George immediately said, come to England, I'm sending a ship. That's the other thing. How could King George send a ship? We're in the middle of a war. Was there a British destroyer that just sort of happened to be idling around in you know, the Arctic that could pop down and pick up the Romanoffs? And there's so many impracticalities throughout the story. That's just the beginning of it. And you talk about the ship and, and the Arctic, I mean, just access, how they were going to get them, I mean, the railways for one, for example. Yeah, I, I mean, even getting the Romanos, they were initially put under house arrest at Alexander Palace, which is about 15 miles south of Petrograd. Getting them up to Murmansk, which was the logical ice-free port, on the northern Russian coast. Uh, the only way they could get them out in March 1917 because of the weather and the ice flows and the snow everywhere. That would have meant getting them on a train 15 miles into Petrograd. Petrograd, the hotbed of the Russian Revolution. And already the most virulent revolutionaries were the Red Guards and the workers controlling the railways. So hang on a minute. You've got to get them through Petrograd, past all these hostile red guards, on a train 800 miles up through Karelia, up, 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 up um, to the very northern coast, and then hope that you can coordinate a British destroyer or a ship to come in, pick them up with the obvious cooperation of the Kaiser, because, of course, the whole of that area of the Arctic was being patrolled by German submarines who were sinking shipping left, right and centre. You had to have a white flag from a manse to get them out. So the logistics, even from Sarsko Silo, were stacked against the family because the thing about the railways is they were pretty fragile. At any point, you know, it wouldn't take many red guards, armed red guards, to stop the train haul off Nicholas and Alexandra and basically string them up. Yeah. So the whole thing, when you start looking at it, and I'm, I got more and more shocked as I did the work. I thought, this is just uh, like a house of cards, one little tip, and the whole thing's going to collapse. The idea of anyone miraculously getting them out becomes more and more improbable. And what about the pro-monarchy groups? Uh, throughout the book, you have these wonderful figures popping up who are full of sort of self-importance, how they are going to, you know, they're going to be the ones who are going to manage to spring the Romanovs. Um, and and, and they're they seem to be actually absolutely useless, but think a lot of themselves. Unfortunately, I mean, the, any claim that the monarchists would save the Romanovs, I mean, completely <laughs> falls apart. <laughs> immediately you look at it. The difficulty with any talk of rescue is, first of all, most of the white Russians and the monarchists who supported the Romanovs wanted to help them, of course, ended up fleeing Russia or being killed or ended up in the diaspora, America, France, here, there, and everywhere. So the actual record, the archival survival of accounts of rescue are, are pretty fragmentary and very hard to find, and also, frustratingly, they contradict each other all over the place. But basically, the monarchists could, <laughs> were pretty hopeless. They had these crazy ideas. I mean, there was one, one idea 
um, right early on when they were in the Alexander Palace. They would storm the Alexander Palace and rescue them from there. I mean, how are you going to rescue Romanov surrounded by armed guards? At Tobolsk, when they were moved into Siberia, there was this crazy plan by monarchists. And there were lots of little cliques and cabals and groups. And no one's working together. And they weren't coordinated. None of them worked together as a cohesive group. And, of course, they were all constantly moaning that they didn't have the funds, that didn't have the funding to set up a network of safe houses and food and transport and all the things needed. Now, some, somebody did actually collect quite a bit of money and seemed to have gone off with it. Yeah, a lot of money it? disappeared. Yes. There were monarchists in Moscow and Petersburg, Petrograd raising money and sending it to Siberia to help them. Uh, Alexandra was smuggling out bit by bit some of her jewels yeah. to help fund rescue. These things all kind of disappeared. And then there were these crazy plans that one monarchist group had. Okay, um, we're not going to be able to get them all. You know, Tobolsk is, what, over a 1,000 miles north to the Arctic coast. Okay, can't get them out that way. Can't get them west through war-torn Europe. The only other alternative is all the way on the Trans-Siberian Railway to Vladivostok. Well, you're not going to get them through there because the, the train would be stopped. So this crazy idea, okay... So somehow, I mean, no one explained how they were going to get them out of the house without lots of people being killed. They were going to take, now get this, a very sick Saritsa, a haemophiliac boy who was really in very frail health, uh, his four sisters and their father, take them hundreds of miles south across the interior of Russia to somewhere like Semipalyatinsk right down in deepest, darkest, almost Central Asia. Now, how are you going to get all those people in that fragile state, all those hundreds of miles, without an incredibly complex and efficient infrastructure? I mean, none of these monarchist groups ever really stopped to think things through clearly. So it was all pie in the sky, complete pie in the sky. Uh, I mean, you were saying they didn't work together, but one of the points that you make at the end of the book is that there was a moment, and that moment was in March 1917, yeah. where mm. you think if the British and the Germans had worked together, mm. this would have been the time that they could have rescued the family or got them out safely. Well, and it was a moral failure on their part? Well, George was a moral coward in withdrawing, well, not exactly withdrawing his offer, but wanting his government to renege from their offer because he got panic-stricken. I think they're the real opportunist, the only possible moment they could have got the family out. And it was said also by a couple of people at Army HQ with Nicholas. Remember, Nicholas is right over in Belarusia as commander-in-chief of the army, about, I don't know, five, 600 miles from where the family are at the Alexander Palace. Alexandra, at the time the revolution broke, was nursing all her children who'd gone down with measles. The children were very sick. This is also one of the factors. But what was suggested by, um, at the time that Nicholas abdicated, is he should get on a train and get the hell out of Russia immediately. But of course he wouldn't go without his family. He would not leave his family. Meanwhile, simultaneously, Alexandra, over at the Alexander Palace, 
with those six children was told by Count Bankendorf, Marshal of the Russian court, you get, if your house is on fire, you run. And basically it was suggested whether the children are sick or not, she should get them on a train and out, out of, of Petrograd and up into probably Finland and go north. But the thing is, the minute within days of the abdication that Alexandra was placed on, under house arrest, she has no autonomy, she has no power to order anyone to get her out. And once Nicholas is brought back, he too is imprisoned with them. The only moment they could have done it was within, the, within days of the abdication. What I, what I think is so interesting, especially when we're discussing the British and uh, the Germans, is that you, you're taken into this book, you read, you're starting to, I'm starting to read the story, and so many people focusing on this story, and yet it's a sideshow to the war. Yeah, and, and, and this, I think, is such an important thing to emphasize because people say, oh, well, what were they all doing to help the Romanovs? Why aren't there dozens of documents in the Royal Archives? You know, um, why aren't they writing anxious letters back and forth all the time about them? The Romanovs actually, in year four of World War One, were right down the pecking order. You know, there were much bigger considerations for King George's king, the Allies, was first of all keeping Russia in the war if they could, but basically ending the war, defeating Germany. And, and you, the overwhelming sense I got was it was a simple matter in the end of utter complacency. They all thought, well, when the Romanovs were moved in August 1917 all the way out to Tobolsk in Western Siberia, they thought, well, they're fine there. It's, it's um, ice, the snow and ice will trap them for six months of the year because it's impenetrable, <laughs> couldn't actually get there. You know, out of sight, out of mind. I think that's what it was all about. They thought they'll be fine there, they're not going to come to any harm. And basically the royals of Europe and the Allied governments all thought, well, we've got more important preoccupations and they'll just, yeah. you know, stop worrying about them. I, I think where, where your study really differs is that so many people try to apportion blame particularly on George V. But what you're doing is trying to explain the failures. Mm. I, I do, I mean, I'm not an apologist no. for George V, but honestly, as I've said so many times when I've spoken on the Romanovs, I get this question, hand goes up. <laughs> Why did George V betray the Romanovs? Why didn't he rescue them? And we've all already yeah. mentioned that he had no executive power to do that. The other thing that's really important, and I hope I highlight it in the book, is that George was very much manipulated by a rather Machiavellian private secretary called Lord Stamfordham. Now, Lord Stamfordham was more passionate about preserving the monarchy, probably, than George himself, and Queen Mary, who was even more passionate. Um, and Stamfordham had a clear agenda I mean, it's not overt, but that's the way I read it. Stamfordham and the British government really didn't want the Romanovs on their hands. And basically, Stamfordham every day went through the press, saw all these negative comments being made in the British press, the editorials about Alexandra. We do not want this German woman in this country. We do not want Nicholas the Bloody. It's going to cause socialist protests and riots in the streets 
And basically, I do believe, and actually a Russian relative of Ronos a couple of years later said as much, that he felt George was absolutely bullied and frightened into thinking, basically, your throne's going to fall. If you bring the Romanos to England, there will be riots and revolution, and the British throne will go down. And the same thing happened, of course, with King Alfonso of Spain, who also wanted to help. And he, in fact, was pay facing even more, I think, of a Republican threat. And so George basically was fed a lot of extremely inflammatory material to make him so frightened that within days of the British government finally sending an offer to bring the Romanovs to England for the duration of the war. That was the offer. It wasn't permanent. Within days of that, George became so fearful of the political consequences of doing that that he basically begged the government to pull back from the offer. I like when you talk about King Gustav of Sweden, that he was so nervous he kept suitcases packed, yeah. ready to go just in case. All the Russian royal, uh, all the Russian royal family's relatives in Europe, of course, closely related to varying degrees, but the Swedes, the, the Norwegians and the Danes, particularly the Danes, who were very closely related, were all petrified the same thing would happen to them, even though they were neutral in the war. Um, the Swedes, Swedish royal family had a lot of difficulties during the war with the threat of public dissent. Mm. They were all basically self-interested in yeah. the end and worried about their own thrones. I think when you say it's nobody's fault and everybody's fault. Yeah, well, that's honest, and that's to take... Dickens uh, <laughs> yeah. in uh, Little Dorrit, you know, it was everybody's fault and yet nobody's fault. And to go back to George, I don't seek to exonerate him, but for, for too many years now, and in far too many books, but even worse, oh God help me, even worse are the blogs and the discussion groups online where they just knee jerk, knee jerk, oh it was George's fault, he's to blame, it was all down to him. You know, come on. It's never that simple. History is not that simple. There were many people in this story with varying degrees of responsibility, even the Romanovs themselves. Yes. I mean, you quote, um, I think it's Alexandra, one of the, this kind of, in the last weeks, or the last week, a message that, they, that comes out from them, and they, it says, we do not want to and cannot escape. Mm. So if remaining in Russia or Crimea, which, was really the place that they desired to go. If it meant exile, they didn't want this. Is this something that had been all the way along, or is this something that, that this is a feeling that they gained throughout the, this year, or? I think their, their position, their, their feelings about it changed. Initially, Nicholas's first response after he abdicated was to ask to be allowed to go to Crimea. They absolutely loved Crimea. And the thing about the Romanovs is that it just wanted to disappear into obscurity, live a quiet life as a family and be together. They didn't want to be or have any intention to be a threat mm. to anyone, certainly not in terms of being a rallying point for a counter-revolution and, um, you know, that kind of thing. But, of course, the provisional government would not allow them to go to Crimea for that reason. But all the way through, you see them changing. I mean, then they're told, well, you're going to go to Russia, uh, leave Russia for the duration of the war, that's when the British offer came. 
And they said, fine, that's fine. So long as we come back, we can come back. Because fundamentally, they really were horrified at the thought of having to leave Russia forever. It broke their hearts to think they would have to leave Russia. And as time goes on, and they become more and more dispirited, and then, of course, Brest-Litovsk yeah. Treaty with Germany, um, and there's a suggestion that as part of the deal, maybe now would be the time for the Germans to orchestrate the Romanovs leaving. Alexandra and Nicholas were horrified. Alexandra said, I'd rather die in Russia than be saved <laughs> by the Germans. And she was a German. Yeah. But she and Nicholas hated Wilhelm. Yeah. And of course, the awful thing about Brest-Litovsk as well, uh, it broke Nicholas's heart because it was Russia capitulating, leaving the war, deserting the Allies. And he, there's one good thing about Nicholas. He was a man of honour. He was a patriot. And he was utterly loyal to his Allies. You say he really fell into a depression. He fell that. into a, a real depression. And the worst of it was he really felt his abdication, which he had done mm. for the good of Mother Russia, mm. to try and unify the, the, the country at a time of difficult, great difficulty in the war. He felt his abdication had been to no avail. And you see Nicholas losing heart. And I think then there is a, another sea change in the family. In Tabos, they were relatively able to, you know, to move outside, at least see the world around them, even wave to people in the street, have parcels and letters and visitors. But then there's this horrible, horrible change. When they were moved over to Ekaterinburg because Tobolsk now was under threat from the civil war spreading. And they were moved to Ekaterinburg, which is a very tough, very hard line, yeah. Bolshevik stronghold. And they are told immediately they arrive there, you are now entering a prison. So they suddenly find they're in this house with an enormous great palisade, a great fence. And then a second one built round the house so no one could see them, they couldn't see out. The windows were painted white. They could no longer have their cameras. The girls loved taking photographs. The cameras were taken away. No more letters, no more parcels, no more contacts. They couldn't even look out the windows. So no, one they of couldn't them was almost shocked looking out the world. window or something, right? No, they couldn't yeah. see the outside one. They had to beg to have a window opened in, in the summer. Suddenly, they are really trapped and cut off, and they turn in on themselves, and thank God, actually, that they had their faith, mm. because what kept them going, and their devotion to each other as a family, what kept them united, what kept them going, was that they were still together. And, that, you know, they said that all the way through this terrible 16 months, so long as we are still together, we'll be okay. It was the thought of separation. So in, I always say to people who say, yeah, but you know, there's these, these theories that actually the Bolsheviks planted different bodies and they're all spirited mm. off. And Nicholas went here and lived there and Alexandra went there and Alexei went here. And the girls, have, and I said, do you honestly think that family would ever have agreed to be separated? They would have preferred to die together. And I believe that very passionately, which for me alone defeats any suggestion of any of them rushing off and separately and escaping. So that the, the final days in that house become very dark. 
and dispiriting. And then it's this terrible moment in Nicholas's journal, because he and Alexander kept journals all their lives, as all the royals kept little diaries, you know, where Nicholas put in his diary about four days before they were murdered, we have absolutely no news from outside. And I think that was the point at which he really gave up. And he had a very strong fatalistic streak anyway. And, and he resigned himself to God and his fate. Uh, Alexandra too, I think. For my last question, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the archives that you looked at, because one of the, one of the really interesting things about this book is the amount of documentation. Um, not just about in terms of your own theories, but also looking at how the documentation doesn't support so many other people's theories. Mm. But really, I mean, from this suitcase at the beginning to the Hudson Bay archive, I mean, you've really... And the Woodhouse Telegraph. Yeah, the Woodhouse <laughs> Telegraph, the missing telegraph as well. Yeah. Uh, and people's personal stories about how their grandfathers were involved in, yeah. uh, in plots to, to free them. I mean, you really did undertake extensive research for this. Well, I felt I had to. And I mean, the process of doing this book is quite different from other books I'd done in that I felt it was very much document driven and I had to stop and write from the beginning what actually was the wording of King George's telegram yeah. when was it sent and go chronologically through the evidence and so it was really really important to verify mm -hmm. many claims that have been made in other books particularly I hate to say it you know the conspiracy theory <coughs> escape books that had never been checked out or documented. And there was one story that had always um, exercised me, which was this claim that the British had built a house at Murmansk as a sort of holding point for the Romanos while they waited for a British ship to come and save them. And uh, I thought, well, hang on a minute. This just doesn't sound plausible. And I, it, this is where being a historian can be yeah. expensive. <laughs> I had... <laughs> because the documents such as they were, were in the Hudson's Bay Company in Winnipeg. Now, okay, when you're a historian, you think, what's the logistics of me flying to Winnipeg, hotels, airplanes, staying there, not knowing my way around the Hudson's Bay archives compared to hiring someone in Canada who knows the archives. So I thought it was much more sensible to hire a local researcher, and I found a wonderful woman who really knew those archives, and she searched and she searched, and she could not substantiate the claims in the way in which it had been written up. So it basically cost me over 800 pounds for a negative result. But that's research, that's what you have to do. You have to pay hundreds of pounds for piles of scans of letters or documents and you plod through them hoping something brilliant's going to turn up only to get the end and think Brr. before we came out <laughs> you were talking about the absence of evidence the yes absence of evidence. <laughs> this is me to remind you this book is all about that absence of evidence doesn't necessarily mean that you know no, I've lost my thread there. Absence of evidence is not exactly... Evidence of absence. Evidence of absence. And this is my whole point with the Royal Archives. People mm. have claimed that, oh, they've been redacted. Someone's gone in and burnt and destroyed things that George must have been writing. Passionate letters and memos left, right and centre, save the Romanos. No, George was 
preoccupied with the war. I don't think there was a conscious desire in some of these archives to conceal or destroy material. I don't think it ever was there. But there are some archives that you still could not get oh, access to. Oh, yes, Royal Archives are frustrating. a nightmare. Royal Archives are a nightmare with the Scandinavians. And they are, I mean, our Royal Archives... So if any of you have any insight? No, yeah, I don't there. want to knock the Scandinavians, but, I mean, they, the Swedish, Norwegian, and Danish archives are just not open to research. Mm. Uh, it, you just can't go there. And, in fact, I got so concerned about the Danish archives because the Danes were very closely related, you know, to the Brits and, and, and certainly closely involved in the early stages of ensuring that the Bromnos were probably taken care of. And in the end, I asked someone I knew in Denmark who, who knows the Queen of Denmark and has done programs about the Danish royal family. I said, I'm really frustrated because I want, you know, I want to know what might be there. And she said, don't worry, Helen, it's all being redacted and weeded and anything remotely compromising has probably be, been destroyed. And of course, one of the problems with the Danish archives is that one of the members of the royal family there was an ardent supporter of Anna Anderson, the false claimant. Yeah. So I think material in that regard may have been you know, destroyed for that reason. But it, you, know, you always have dead ends in research and you think, am I missing something really, really crucial? But I think the Scandinavians, for all their various reasons, being neutral nations, just trying to hold on to their own thrones and, you know, having huge economic problems mm. with food shortages, they had, all of them had other fish to fry, you know, other preoccupations. So I think it's less likely that there is missing material in that sense. Where I think we really won't know, ever know, is whether there was any British... SIS, Secret yeah. Service, Foreign Office Mission, you name it. There have been all kinds of suggestions mm. that some kind of rescue uh, or recce of Ekaterinburg was mounted to send an agent out there to see how viable it would be to get them out. But there's no evidence. And with anything like the Secret Intelligence Service, which was in its infancy, uh, as I've been told, there may not have been a documentary record it may have gone through back channels, or if it's Secret Service, it's going to remain closed. And that's the frustrating thing, and I can't bear it. Um, it's that what I don't know and what I can't get at, I might be there. So in the end, you just push the envelope as hard as you can. I chased down every single piece of paper I could in this story, and the one triumph for me was getting to the Kaiser's scribbles. Yes because I knew the Kaiser had jotted down some notes and no one had ever found them or it's, it had been suggested that a copy of the notes had been destroyed. And I actually did track them down in the book Hohenzollern yeah. archives. He doesn't come out so well, does he? Oh. No. <laughs> um, and it was great to finally get a piece of the evidence, but it's such hard work getting to the truth. It, it, it is a labour of love. Now, I'd like to ask you many more questions, but it's really not fair on all of you. So I'm going to open it to the floor. Uh, we have some time now for questions, obviously not about Anastasia, and uh, not uh, blaming George V either. Isn't that right? I don't mind more questions about George. I might find his position interesting. But, um... Yes. Uh, 
According to uh, the BBC documentary... Where's what, my question now? Sorry, from here. I'm here. According to the BBC documentary Royal Cousins at War, uh, and this is regarding your point of George V being a constitutional monarch, uh, apparently Lloyd George was willing uh, to let the Romanovs uh, go come into Britain, but of course, as you said, Lord Stamford advised King George V against it, and so uh, Lloyd George pulled, uh, Lloyd George uh, withdrew the offer, and apparently he was scapegoated for, for, for that, and uh, so, uh, uh, because uh, he felt, Lloyd George felt he couldn't do it because, you know, George V was well. So do you, ex do you accept that, although George V was a constitutional monarch, he did have, still have enough influence behind the scenes on the British government not to give the Romanovs asylum? Do you accept? Um, I kind of need to simplify that. Lloyd George, the, uh, as okay. Prime Minister, was reluctant to bring the Romanovs to Britain for the same reasons that King George himself was. But what was interesting was that in later years, Lloyd George wrote his memoirs, extensive war memoirs, in which he wrote a whole chapter about where the Tsar was going to live uh, if he came to England. And he recounted the, the memorandum and letters within the British government describing the discussions. But when he sent that chapter off to have it vetted, it implied that the king was, you know, up in arms and, and worried. And he was basically told, you must remove the chapter. And so his memoir was actually controlled by officialdom. And George took the entire chapter out and in a way kind of had to carry the can. There was this obsession that at all costs, King George's reputation had to be protected. And the same thing happened when George Buchanan, the ambassador, wrote him his memoirs in the 20s and described the difficulties, how he begged and begged and pushed the British government to help the Romanovs. Similarly, he was made to remove sections from his memoir on pain of losing his pension if he did not protect the king's position. So, you know, there were all kinds of factors that came to play. But if one thing became clear to me doing this book, it's that, okay, we are all aware that George was reluctant for the Romanos to come to England. Actually, the British government didn't want the political problems any more than the king himself. Sorry, gentleman here. Do you want to wait till the mic comes so that everyone can hear your question? Thank you. Just here. Um, hi, Helen. Um, I was wondering what, what was your take on um, Alexandra's uh, personality. Like growing up, her mother died when she was only six, and she grew up uh, basically under the care of her grandmother, Queen Victoria. Um, why do you think she became so autocratic, um, considering like her upbringing like, would have been under a constitutional monarch? I think that's difficult to explain. I think really uh, Alexandra's whole position about preserving 
the Russian monarchy was all to do with her absolute obsession with her boy, her hope of Russia. You've got to get inside the mind of a woman whose primary function, having married the emperor of Russia, was to produce a son and heir, because there was no primogeniture in Russia. It had to be a boy child. And she went through those four agonizing pregnancies, finally, finally produced this boy. Oh my God, he's a hemophiliac. And she just became ultra-obsessive, protective of Alexei's legacy. And I think everything she did was a reflection of that, to the point that even after they were in captivity, there are suggestions, and you can see it in things she said, she was secretly hoping there could be a restoration, that the whites would come galloping in and save them, and Alexei would be restored as Tsar, because there's no question that Nicholas would ever do the job again. She had this fantasy that, that her darling boy could be Tsar eventually. So I think it's a lot of it is to tied up with purely that, being the mother of the only boy child. Time for one more question. Uh, I have a question over oh, here. Sorry, where am I? Uh, I'm over here. Oh, sorry, where are How you? Are you? Over Hello. there, Hi. sorry. Yeah. Um, what's your take on um, how um, Alexei's hemophilia was cured or by Rasputin. What, what's your feeling on that? Well, you know, I sometimes say, well, first of all, I think if Alexei had not been hemophiliac, history would have been quite different with the Russian monarchy. I think that was a pivotal moment which completely changed the, the whole character of the Russian monarchy thereafter. In terms of Rasputin, well, I don't think... There are two highly demonized personalities in this story, and it's Rasputin and Alexandra. The appalling gossip, salacious rumor, the stories, the innuendo, and the absurd accusation, the suggestion that during the war years, Alexandra and Rasputin were German spies conniving to help the German war effort. No two people in history have been more vilified and demonized and misrepresented and the trouble with Rasputin is trying to claw away through all this disinformation, the horrible, lurid stories written about him. But the only conclusion I can honestly tell you that I have come to is that I do believe he had some kind of healing gifts. I don't know how you would explain him, whether there were, he had some kind of psychosomatic powers, but I do think... To try, I tried to find a way of describing it. I think he was like a people whisperer. Now, you know what the horse whisperer does. The horse whisperer can soothe and calm an animal and reassure it. He had that ability with Alexandra and with Alexei. And I think what happened with Alexei in terms of him healing or helping when Alexandra had those terrible bleeding episodes was... He was able to reassure the mother by telling Alexandra, don't worry, it's all going to be okay. And the fact that the mother is calmed reassures the child. And so there was something going on there, some power, auto-suggestive power, but I honestly can't explain it except to say I think he has been grossly misrepresented. And the other important thing to remember with Rasputin, when you look at the evidence, his real function for Nicholas and Alexandra was actually less what he did for Alexei and more being this spiritual advisor. 
being Father Grigori, our friend, because they were so isolated in those final years with the threat of attack and revolution and assassination. Grigori was one of the few people they could trust, and he advised them and was a spiritual, a spiritually reassuring presence in their lives. And you can see it even with the children, too. They did think a great deal of him in those terms. But if anyone has been demonized, it's Rasputin. We have time for one more question. And Boney I M have a lot to answer. <laughs> it's all, you know, <laughs> rah, rah, Rasputin. Just one uh, last question, Helen. Um, I, when I was reading on some research on, on, on the Romanovs, I came across a book by uh, Robert Wilton, oh, who yeah. was the Times correspondent in Ekaterinburg. But what I discovered is that they, when it was published in England, they actually uh, took out the two pages that were listed, the uh, provisional government, uh, the Jewish uh, names and the Russian names. Mm. And um, because Goloshkin and Yurovsky and Sverlov uh, you know, basically, who were in charge of the execution were Jewish. They were very concerned that there would be no um, image of a Jewish involvement in yeah. the execution. So, what would your position be on that one? Well, this is a, a very interesting and very difficult topic because if there's one thing I've encountered in a lot of conspiracy theories about Romanov survival or the end of the Romanov story in Russian language sources there is a very unpleasant anti-Semitic element to it. And there was at the time in the stuff being written outside Russia, Robert Wilton was notoriously anti-Semitic. And of course, there's this knee-jerk thing amongst some monarchists, pro-monarchists, pro-Romanov Russians, that the Jews murdered the Tsar. And of course, if you look at the list um, of many of the members of the CEC and the early Bolshevik um, government, and many of them were Jewish. So there obviously was an attempt there to um, defuse that. And it is a very contentious thing. And there is still, I, I find, a really disturbing element in a lot of what's been written in Russia about the murder of the Romanovs that is anti-Semitic. I'm sorry that I have to draw this conversation to a close. There's so much more in this book which uh, we could talk about. I'm sure you, you have lots of questions. I think you're doing a book signing um, outside now. Is that, is that correct? Am I giving misinformation? I think so. I think so. <laughs> uh, so maybe you might uh, ask Helen a few questions then. Uh, but thank you so much, Helen, for such a lovely time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. If you'd like to subscribe, you'll find all the information you need at dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and we're also on Twitter, at HistFest. <laughs>